y'all. I'm Donna. And I'm Carrie. And we are Paranormal Chicks. Sinister Sightings 251. All right, jumping right in. The first one. A Fertile Crescent. Hello, you wonderful women. We enjoy your podcast and can relate to most of the stories on Sinister Sightings. Jen and I, Samantha, have been life partners in Nashville, Tennessee for the past 20 years. A few years ago, we lived in an area that was described to us at one point as the Fertile Crescent of Hauntings. Basically, we lived on a Civil War battleground. In December 1864, there were conflicts over about four weeks that was a last attempt by Confederate Lieutenant General John Bell Hood's force to capture Nashville. Our home was located in the heaviest of artillery battling during one day of the weeks-long campaign. As you can guess, we became familiar with the intricate details of our Civil War past due to our belief in their connection with the events of our home. A couple that I knew through church owned my future home. Upon retirement, they decided to move to Arizona, but wanted to keep the house. Their granddaughter was going to go to college nearby and wanted to live in the home, but didn't want to live there alone. I had previously met Elsie during a vacation trip with the homeowner, and we had a good rapport, although we didn't know each other very well. We were from different generations, as she was in her early 20s and I was 40-ish. I had recently ended a long-term relationship and was searching for a new home. The stars aligned, as they say, and we decided to share the home. We met at the house to finalize our plans, and Elsie said to me, I don't want to be in the right section of the house. It creeps me out. It was an 80s ranch home with living spaces on each side with the kitchen and dining room in the middle. I asked her, what do you mean? She replied, I had visited my grandparents here a few times, and at some point in each visit, I felt a chill go up my back. The place kind of scares me. I've always been sensitive and believed in the unseen world. I've lived in haunted houses before, but had never felt threatened or scared. My fears were more centered on the living, so I replied, I'll take the right side. It'll be all right. The right side showed me its backside starting with sleep paralysis. The paralysis started by being awakened by a very black, one-dimensional, five-foot-tall figure. It looked like the thick, stick-like images you see on public safety signs. In those moments, I was paralyzed from my feet to my waist. As each moment ticked by, I felt the sensation traveling up my torso. As it inched closer to my lungs, I had a frantic fear of suffocating. Like other people who have sent stories for you to read on Sinister Sightings, I found that making a noise or moving in some tiny way made the entity and the paralysis go away. Although, over time, I would have to move more and make louder noises before it would release me. This event started to happen maybe twice a month and then progressed to once or twice per week. I didn't know what to do to make it stop. It was terrifying. Other things started happening in other areas of the home as well. We were eating dinner together one night and 20 minutes into our meal... A large 12-inch long, we call it the machete, butcher knife on the kitchen island quickly slid off the counter and crashed into the tile floor. This sound made us both jump. Neither of us saw the knife move, yet we were very aware that it was not moved by either of us, and there were no animals in the house at that time. There was no shaking of the house. It was on a concrete foundation with no basement. Elsie said to me, do you think someone's trying to tell us something? I replied, maybe, but I wish they'd not communicate with sharp objects. A few days after the knife event, Elsie was preparing dinner and I was standing at the stove. The kitchen had a window over the sink that showed the view of the backyard. The island counter ran parallel to the sink. 
The stove was located to the left of the sink on a perpendicular counter to the sink counter. The sink and the island counter were basically behind Elsie's back. Two pans placed on the sink slid off the counter and hit the tile floor, making a sharp cymbal sound. The noise scared the shit out of Elise, as she had no warning of the crash, either by seeing the movement or hearing the sounds. My view of the event was somewhat different as I was waiting for my fish taco dinner at the dinner table. As we talked about our day, I noticed movement by the sink. Before I could warn Elise, the pans hit the floor with a crash. This was my first fish taco dinner. It didn't scare off my love of fish tacos. Another night, Elise was in the living room area watching Joe and the Volcano movie. It was movie night, and as usual, there was popcorn. While seated at the couch watching Elise's favorite movie, the popcorn pot slid to the floor and made a loud, tinny, booming sound. We paused the movie and rushed into the kitchen to investigate the sound. As we entered the kitchen, the fluorescent lights dimmed significantly and then restored to their original brightness a moment later. After cleaning up the popcorn pop, we had a haunting huddle on the couch. So I think we have a ghost. Did anyone die in the house? I asked. Not that I know of, but the next door neighbor fell off his roof and died a few years ago, fell between the houses. Hmm, but what do you think it's trying to tell us? Do you think it's benevolent? I said. No, I think that it's trying to scare us. I said, I'm going to smudge this place. Elsie stated, I'm getting a dog. Movie night was over. On yet another evening occasion in the kitchen, Elsie and I were having an in-depth conversation about our lives to become better acquainted. I'd lit a pumpkin spice scented candle that was on the kitchen island. The holidays were nearing and it was chilly outside. We stood on opposite sides of the six-foot island having some wine and cheese. My back was to the sink. At some point, Elsie said, matter-of-factly, Samantha, you're on fire. I took it as a compliment and said, thanks, so you really like that last story, eh? Elsie then yelled, no, I mean, you are literally on fire. Glancing back, smoke rolled up my back and reached my nose. I quickly grabbed my new one-fourth zipped red cotton sweater and yanked it over my head while praying that my hair didn't catch fire. I spun around and tossed it into the sink and then doused it with water. The charred section of my sweater was the side of a salad plate. So much for my new red sweater that my mother had given me. We agreed that there was no way it had been close enough to the candle for my sweater to have caught on fire. There was food and some plates on the island between the candle. At the end of the island, Elsie and I approximately two and a half feet. We then had another serious conversation about the unsettling occurrences in the house and concluded that there might be two spirits in the house. The thing in my bedroom and the thing that seemed to like hanging out in the kitchen. Elsie did adopt a puppy and promptly named him Henry. When I asked why Henry, she said that she wasn't sure. This will be significant later. We will send another installment of this story to you as this message is already pretty long. The next installment will help tie in what we learned about our home over time to the Civil War. Once Jen arrived on the scene, the activity dramatically increased and caused us more fervently to search for answers. While visiting Rapaville, a Middle Tennessee antebellum plantation home featured on TV as a haunted location, we met the caretaker who asked us where we were from. When we told him that we live in Green Hills, he said, oh, you live in the fertile crest of hauntings. That shocked us as he cared for a site that is known to be very haunted. More soon, blessings to the two of you and the fun and creepy community you've created, Samantha. Do you know who was in Joe in the Volcano? Wait, The Rock. Tom Hanks. Oh. I think. I'm pretty sure. How are you going to quiz me and you don't even know? Well, because I thought you might know, but I'm pretty sure it was on one of those movie 
games that we would play. Oh. Because I had never heard of that before. Also, Stephanie, you use big words, like, fervently. I know. You're way smarter than me. I had to ask Donna how to say, what was it? Tiny? Teeny? Yeah. Tinny. Tinny. Yeah, I skipped it once because I didn't know it, and then she used it again. (laughs) And I was like, I guess I got to say it. (laughs) Also, I get that your friend was like, hey, I don't like this side. Like, I want the other side. But damn. Like, I get a bad feeling, so I'm not going to stay there, but you have fun. Right, so I'm not staying there, so you're stuck there. Yeah, it's like, well, fuck. (laughs) Now I see why she didn't want to stay there by herself, though. Uh Uh-huh. I can't wait to get the next emails with the rest of the story. Okay, the next one. Hey, ladies, I've been meaning to write in, but I'm a procrastinator. I have two shorter stories for you today, so let's jump in. Okay, right off the bat, are you Carrie? Because she always will say, let's jump in. Like, let's dive in. But I never said let's dive in. What do you say? Let's jump right in. Literally never dive. Sorry. The only time I dive is into a pool. Well, she said let's jump in. I know, but then you said I say dive. (laughs) I'm not going to see her face. (laughs) Okay, so I was right. Halfway. Halfway. (laughs) But also she's a procrastinator. Oh, yeah, that too, big time. All right, let's get into your story, though. My dad worked as a prison guard at Pelican Bay State Prison for many years. It's located on the California coast near the border of Oregon, which is where we lived. Pelican Bay is not somewhere you want to be. 75% of the prison's inmates are level 4 dangerous offenders. Back in 2000, there was a riot that included 200 inmates, and they recovered almost 90 prison-made weapons. The inmate we'll be talking about today is none other than Charles Manson. Manson was moved from Corcoran Prison to Pelican Bay in March of 1997 after he was charged with the conspiracy to distribute narcotics. One day, my dad and another guard had to escort him to the showers. Once he was securely locked in, the other guard had to run off and do something, but would be right back. During the time the other guard was gone, Manson finished his shower and wanted to come out. My dad told him no, they had to wait for the other guard to come back. Manson didn't like that answer and proceeded to put a hex on my dad. Whether or not the hex was effective is up to debate, but some events in his life does make me think it might have been. Next story. It was back in 2006 and I was working at a doctor's office in a small town on the Oregon coast. We were in a small complex that had some medical offices, an urgent care, and an MRI place that all shared a parking lot. Pelican Bay would bring inmates to the MRI office early in the morning, before business hours every week. One day, I was sitting in the break room waiting for work to start, and my coworker walked in, and she was not okay. She looked like she was in shock. I yelled for the nurse, and we sat her down. She finally gets out that she just hit someone with her car. She was pulling into the steep driveway and someone ran right into her car and went over her roof. When he landed, he got up and ran. It was about that time we started to hear sirens. It turns out an inmate had managed to get out of his restraints while he was waiting for the MRI. He ran out and ran right into my coworker's car. After he got up, he ran down the street and was found at a grocery store trying to get into a car. That's all for now. I'll write in soon about my old haunted house that I just moved out of. Kim. Kim. 
This is why you never let your guard down with inmates. Like when you're taking them for medical procedures and stuff, because we get inmates at my work too, and I'll have to make splints for them or just treat them for therapy. Most of the time, if they're coming for therapy, they're from the state prison, but sometimes we'll get them from the county lockup too. But I literally never let my guard down with them. I always, especially if I'm making splints on them, because that involves scissors, it immediately goes back into my pocket, you know, or I don't take the scissors in there at all if possible. But it could turn at any point. They could be like this guy probably faked an illness to go get an MRI and then took a chance. Or even if he didn't fake an illness, he took a chance. I hate to be like that, that you can't ever let your guard down, but you can't. Like, that's what I always try to teach students too. I tell them it's always a con. They, and this comes from Colby too, when he was a corrections officer and he's like, never give them anything. They're always going to, and you can't say that for everybody, but you also have to protect yourself. It's the same thing as treating every gun like it's loaded. You can't just be like, well, sometimes they're not loaded because it could be, you know, same thing with inmates. I feel like you have to be prepared for the worst. And thankfully, you have some that aren't going to do the worst, but you have to be prepared in the event that they are. So with students and all, I always tell them, expect that it's a con. You know, they're trying to get information out of you. They're trying to whatever, you know, like I don't wear my badge in there, you know, that kind of stuff. You just have to protect yourself at all costs. I love these stories and we need a whole like book from you. Okay. Thank you. Like the her dad knew Charles Manson, like had an interaction with him. Yeah. Could have gotten hexed by him. What happened in your dad's life that you think lined up? Well, that's also so funny because right when we finished recording this, we were going to record one of the bonus episodes for Patreon for the States. And when I tell you, I almost did Manson. Like I almost did him as a story. And I was like, that's a big one. That's that's more of like a main episode win. But I'm telling you, I was this close to doing his story. Wouldn't that have been some shit? I think, though, for Manson, he was more about the shock value versus, I mean, obviously, I hear what you're saying, that your dad had some things happen in him in his life that make you question it. But I think he's more of like, I'm going to put a hex on you then, you know? I think he was just into the occult. And I think he was just the end of things that made people uncomfortable. Like, even his art in prison was all scorpions. You know, why scorpions? It's not the norm, and scorpions are, you know, deadly and all the things. Like, I think he picks things to make people uncomfortable intentionally. But I also think because he did have so much evil in him that, like, even if you aren't, like, a practitioner or anything, you could, like, send those bad vibes to someone. I feel like that. Because I honestly, like, if someone's sick and I say, like, I'm sending you positive vibes, like, I, I, like, put out that intention, like, to, like, please let them get better. Like, hopefully mm-hmm. everything goes right. So, like, if I feel like if you put that intention out, like, it doesn't, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. that's why you don't want to do bad things because karma. Yeah. And all of that. Before we get into the next story, we've got to talk about Lumi. Valentine's is just around the corner, and you know what the secret to a great date is? Feeling confident from head to toe. That's why we're here to tell you about Lumi's whole body deodorant for 
all the things. Your pits, your bits, your tits, your all the things. Privates and beyond. Lumi's whole body deodorant was designed by an OBGYN to work on literally every part of your body. From head to toe, feet, literally everywhere. Because everywhere gets odor. But what makes Lumi so different is that it is pH balanced so that you can use it in all of those areas. And it's clinically proven to block odor all day long. There are over 275,000 five-star reviews. So you know that Lumi's got to be doing something right. And if you use Lumi on that first date, that smells like a second date to me. And for me personally, as an extra large pizza, I really worry about, you know, I want to make sure that I smell good. And so I will use it in all of my little crevices just to make sure. Right. So Lumi has something for everyone. They have, you know, the normal stick deodorant. They have body wash. They have wipes. And it comes in all different scents. You know I'm a coconut girl through and through. But there's also that lavender. There's some bright citrus and non-scented. I go back and forth on what do I like the best. I like the toasted coconut, but your girl just loves the unscented over here too. I like to spruce up with perfume, but then block down my regular odors with Lumi. And you know how I said all-day odor-blocking power? It really does control odor for up to 72 hours. You can be in your messy, depressy era and not stink. And even better, Lumi is baking soda-free and paraben-free. And like I said, pH balance for safe use below the belt. So for this Valentine's Day, get ready for that date, whether it is the hottest date on the planet with yourself or with somebody else. As a special offer for you, new customers can get $5 off a Lumi starter pack with code CREEP at LumiDeodorant.com. That's over 40% off on your starter pack. Now, what the heck is a starter pack, you may ask? Look, that comes with a solid stick deodorant, a cream tube deodorant, and two free products of your choice. So you could get the deodorant wipes, you could get a little mini body wash, and free shipping. So again, new customers get $5 off their Lumi starter pack with using code CREEP at LumiDeodorant.com. That's L-U-M-E-D-E-O-D-O-R-A-N-T.com. 40% off free shipping, that's a lot. So head on over to LumiDeodorant.com and use promo code CREEP. Okay, the next one. Hello, ladies. It's Amber from Iowa. This week's write-in is a story from one of my clients. I'm a hairstylist. Last year, when I started listening to you guys, I asked my clients if they had any creepy stories. A few had a couple generic ghost stories, urban legends, that sort of thing. Nothing that I felt was weird or cool enough to let you both in on. Then I got to, let's call her Nancy. Picture it, Waterloo, Iowa, circa 1968 through 1970. Growing up, Nancy's mom was very sick. Nancy never told me what was wrong with her, just that it was like growing up in one of those movies where the mom is locked away in the bedroom and never gets out of bed. And to make it even better, her dad wasn't in the picture. Nancy said that her mother's sickness really took a toll on her older brother. Let's call him Greg. I think she said that he was around 15 at the time. To get out of the house and get away from all the medical stuff and overall depression that filled the home, Greg would go fishing. 
She said he would usually go alone, but after a while, he started mentioning his friend John. If you're good with your serial killer trivia, you may be starting to figure out where this is going. Nancy's brother made a new friend, John, a man 10 plus years older than him, which Nancy and her mom thought was weird, but hey, it's the late 60s and he dresses up as a clown, so he's got to be good with kids and teens, right? Right? You got it. Her brother had just befriended the one and only John Wayne Gacy. Remember how I said their mother's health was taking a toll on Greg? Well, John was right there with the solution. He was about to move back to his hometown in Illinois, and he would have a place for him to live if he wanted to come with. Greg jumped at the idea. He tried and tried to convince his mother to let him move out of the state with a man he barely knew. Thankfully, he never got the yes he wanted out of her and is still alive today to tell the story about how he almost moved to the house with Gacy where he buried all of the boys under the floorboards. Two other little tidbits. My dad also grew up in Waterloo and his friend's house shared a backyard with a house Gacy was living in at the time. So that's fun. And Gacy was a manager of the local KFC and would make everyone call him Colonel. I've been trying to drop hints to my husband to sign me up for the Creepinati for Christmas, so hopefully I'll be binging again soon. Amber. What the actual F? John Wayne Gacy? Like, when Carrie said that name, my eyes go pop. But it kills me that you didn't get it from the clown and the John and all those things. I wouldn't have gotten it from the Waterloo because I honestly, I don't know why. I've never really been super interested in John Wayne Gacy, so I don't really know a lot. I was really hoping that from the Dahmer series that what's-his-name was in, I was really hoping, because you know how they did that episode about Gacy, that he was going to be the next one. And he may still, there was a writer strike and all of that, so they may still do it. But I was really hoping they would do it so I could kind of get to know more about him. Yeah, I've watched some stuff on like a documentary about him and stuff like that. And it just makes me so like fucking mad. Yeah, I did see his two clown costumes and some of his makeup and stuff in the museum in Gatlinburg that we went to, the Alcatraz Museum. And that was really cool for i mean i hate to be like oh that's so cool he's a fucking serial killer but it was interesting to get to see all of his stuff nancy's brother was lucky and i really want to know what her mother had okay because i'm nosy (laughs) okay the next one hey y'all it's sarah again with another springfield illinois story again this information comes from the book haunted springfield illinois by garrett moffett this is the lake club Firefighters were called to a scene near Lake Springfield one early Sunday morning in August 1992. When they arrived, they found a dilapidated old building that had been closed for several years, completely engulfed in flames. The fire, which was later turned out to have been deliberately set, destroyed a place called the Lake Club, a once grand restaurant and nightclub that had been out of business since the 1960s. Other businesses had come and gone in the building since the demise of the club, but most people recalled the 1940s and the 1950s as the golden age of the Lake Club. It was from this time period that stories of big bands, live radios, and illegal gambling emerged as fond remembrances of yesteryear. But it was also during this time that stories of the club's resident ghost emerged a tragic nightclub employee who simply refused to leave. The Lake Club opened as a nightclub in the 1940s, but the building on Fox Bridge Road had seen different incarnations in the years prior to that, 
including several restaurants and even an ice skating rink called the Joy Inn. In 1940, two dance promoters named Harold Henderson and Hugo Giovanali renovated the place and opened it for business as the Lake Club. Sorry about his last name. The club soon became one of the hottest night spots in Illinois, drawing customers from all over the state. It boasted a raised dance floor surrounded by a railing with curved walls and swanky atmosphere that made most patrons feel as though a New York club had been transported to the shores of Lake Springfield. The owners concentrated on bringing big-named entertainment to the club and succeeded. Among the many top performers were Bob Hope, Ella Fitzgerald, Guy Lombardo, Pearl Bailey, Spike Jones, Nelson Eddy, Woody Herman, Mickey Rooney, and many others. The constant stream of entertainers and big bands brought capacity crowds to the club every night. During the height of its popularity, the club even hosted a radio call-in show that broadcast music and entertainment all over the area. The Lake Club thrived for nearly two decades, becoming known not only for its swinging entertainment, but for its first-rate gambling as well. Wealthy customers and the society elite of Springfield and Decatur frequented the club for not only the musical guests, but also the billiard tables, craps, and gambling tables, slot machines, and card games. This part of the club operated in secret in the back part of the building, known only to the high rollers and special customers. However, in December 1958, the golden days of the Lake Club came to an end. The partners had survived many setbacks over the years, from lawsuits to foreclosures, but the club could not survive the two undercover detectives who gained access to the gambling rooms that Christmas season. The club was immediately shut down, although patrons continued dining and dancing while the actual raid was going on. The two state troopers who entered the gambling rooms were the first police officers to arrive, but many more followed. Newspaper accounts reported that the police confiscated all sorts of gambling equipment, including tables, dice, slot machines, and large quantities of cash. The billiard tables were so large that they had to be dismantled to get them out of the room. Business began to falter in the wake of the raid, and the place finally closed down in the 1960s. Hugo blamed the failure of the club on gambling crackdown, always maintaining that the entertainment had just been part of the club's appeal. However, he refused to give up. Despite his partner Harold Henderson's death in 1977, Hugo managed to open the club again with other parties involved managing different projects of the building. During the next popular time in the club's history, it was managed by Bill Carmine and Tom Blasco as a rock club. In 1980, it was leased by Pat Tavine, who also operated it as a rock club until 1988 when it closed down for good. Bill Carmine was the first to notice that something strange was going on at the club. Both he and Tom Blasco had experienced cold chills in the building, along with hearing odd sounds and getting the feeling of being watched in certain rooms. One afternoon, he came into the club and sat down at the bar with the lights off. Suddenly, he heard the sound of a piano being played in another room. He got up to see who else was in the building with him, and as he stepped into the room, the music stopped and that room was completely empty. Weird things continued to happen. Often on Monday nights, while Carmine would be in the building going over the weekend receipts, 
He would hear a door near the office open and footsteps crossing the floor. He would jump from his seat to see who was there, but the hallway was always empty. Carmine also remembered a salesman visiting his office one evening when a glass flew off the table and hit the wall on the opposite side of the room. That salesman left in a hurry. By 1976, the haunting had intensified and things began happening more often and in front of more witnesses. A club bartender was pouring a drink one night when the glass in front of him suddenly shot up into the air and landed over his shoulder. A waitress also experienced the antics of the ghost one night when she went to serve a drink to a customer, only to find the glass inexplicably filled with chocolate. She would later insist that the glass had been absolutely clean when she handed it to the bartender. Carmine was the first of the club staff to guess the identity of the ghost who was plaguing the club. He started calling the guest by name, Rudy. Albert Rudy Craner had worked at the Lake Club during its heyday in the 1940s and 50s. He was described as being well-liked and popular with the entertainers and the customers. He was a very large man, well over 250, and he had snow-white hair. He was remembered as one of the club's most memorable characters, and even 50 years later, people who remember him speak fondly of him and recall him as a nice man and their favorite bartender. After the club fell on hard times following the gambling raid, Rudy also began experiencing some personal difficulties. He was a very private person, so no one really knew what was going on, but they did notice that he began drinking heavily while on the job. They also began to take notice of some changes in his personality and appearance. He seemed to be more tired than usual, and dark circles had began to appear under his eyes. Then, one night, he became sick and had to be rushed to the hospital. It took several men to carry him downstairs to the ambulance. He returned to the club after a two-week stay in the hospital, but he was never the same again. On June 27, 1968, Rudy shot himself with a high-powered rifle in one of the back rooms at the club. He died in the hospital the next morning, never regaining consciousness. No one was ever sure why Rudy died by suicide, but regardless, he wouldn't stay gone for long. In a few short years, he would return to haunt his beloved club. The strange events at the club continued in the form of weird antics and pranks, apparently carried out by the ghost of Rudy. One night, Tom Blasco placed a pile of tablecloths on an empty table and left the room. When he came back, the cloths were on the floor. He picked them up and left again, only to return moments later and find them once again on the floor. This repeated several times until Blasco finally gave up and just left them on the floor. Employees and visiting musicians often reported strange occurrences like doors opening and closing by themselves, the sound of footsteps in empty rooms, a drink that lifted off the table and then dumped in a customer's lap, office equipment that operated on its own, feelings of being poked and prodded by unseen hands, and numerous other bizarre happenings. A frightening event took place the summer of 1977 when Barbara Lard, a waitress at the club, had an encounter with Rudy himself. She was working one evening and went to the bathroom behind the back office. As she came out, she glanced over the back bar and saw Rudy looking at her. She described what she saw as just a head hanging there in space, and although she could see through it, the head appeared 
lifelike. She said the apparition had snow white hair and she had never known or heard about or even saw a photograph of the late bartender. The apparition looked at her for a moment and then spoke, telling the waitress that one of the owners in the club was going to die. This was not a threat, Lard recalled later, but merely a warning. The waitress ran out of the room in tears, visibly shaken and close to hysterics. Other staff members who saw her that night reported that she was very frightened and that she was not a person known to be hysterical or easily frightened. Tom Blasco later stated that he went back into the room after Lard's encounter and claimed to feel the same bone-chilling cold that he always associated with Rudy's spirit. Needless to say, Blasco and Carmine were more than a little unnerved by the ghost warning. By this time, they had no doubt that the ghost was real and that the club was extremely haunted. Because of this, they also had no reason to doubt that Barbara Lard's encounter had been real. Her description of the late Rudy Craner had been too accurate to have been imagined. The two men waited and were probably more careful than usual when doing things like driving to work or climbing ladders. Then, two weeks after the incident, Harold Henderson, one of the original owners of the club, died at the age of 69. He was still the owner of the building itself and was an owner that Rudy would have known during his lifetime. The incident would shake Blasco more than anyone else. He had spent two weeks living in fear for his life, and he felt that it was time to get rid of the ghost if possible. Perhaps Rudy had been trying to be helpful with his warning, but Blasco really didn't care. He contacted a woman he knew was interested in the occult, and she suggested that he ask a priest for help. Blasco was a practicing Catholic, but when he contacted his parish priest, the man declined to become involved. He suggested that Blasco pray for Rudy on his own, and Tom spent the next six months carrying Rosary around the club with him. But it didn't help. Rudy was still there. Finally, in August of 1979, Blasco attended a high school reunion and ran into one of his former classmates, Reverend Gary Dilly, a priest who now lived in Fort Worth, Texas. Tom mentioned the problems of the club to Father Dilly, and the priest was intrigued. After some discussion, he agreed to come out to the club and take a look around. He said later that he believed Blasco was sincere what he said was happening, and he had known the man for many years and never thought of him as the hysterical type. After arriving at the club, Father Dilly also sent something out of the ordinary there. He experienced some unexplained cold chills and felt as if someone was watching him. He said in a later interview, I also had the feeling of someone trying to communicate with me. The priest questioned several of the club's employees and found their stories were all very similar. He knew that they had not had time to compare notes before he had spoke with them. He was convinced that something was going on, but he declined to do an exorcism of the club. To do that, the case would require a thorough investigation and permission from the local bishop, which he doubted that he would get. Instead, he decided to bless the place and pray there, hoping this would help Rudy to rest. So that was the end of the haunting, right? Apparently it was. The same people who considered the club to be haunted were now sure that Rudy had departed. The day of the religious ceremony was the last day anyone was aware of Rudy's presence in the building. It seemed like the prayers and the blessings had helped the bartender find his way to the other side. It certainly seemed possible that Rudy might have chosen to stay behind in a place where he had had many attachments in life. 
Perhaps the intervention of the priest was all he needed to be convinced to move on. Love y'all so much. Stay spooky. You just going to copy and paste that as one of your stories? Right? I was like, well, that's amazing. I know. That was like literally one of your whole stories. That was awesome. Yeah. I bet those owners were so freaking scared. I would have been. Oh, my gosh. I mean, that was literally a freaking Christmas carol come true. (laughs) Yes. Oh, my God. Fucking Bob Marley. What was his name? Not Bob Marley. That's the singer. Jacob. Yeah, Jacob. Barley? I think it was Marley. Oh, okay. Well, either way, he came to town and he said, one of you will die. Right? But it makes sense that it was one of the older owners Mm -hmm. that Rudy had, you know, done. But, I mean, if you would have been like, oh, it's probably one of the old owners. I'm going to live my life. Like, Uh -uh. you know what I mean? You're not going to do that. No, nobody's doing that. Uh Uh-uh. Just like Carrie, you might not believe it, which they did. But, like, you might not believe it, but you're going to be cautious. Okay, the next one. Good morning, ladies. Greetings from Canada. I have my bestie to blame for introducing me to your podcast. We have a similar humor to you ladies, and I listen while I work, though I do get weird looks from my tenants as I listen to you ladies as I clean. Today, I listen to Sinister Sightings 26. Yes, I am way behind. Well, I'm writing in about my experience at the Haunted Museum in Vegas. In my opinion, the place is legit. Well, on the start of the tour, we went to the clown room. No breezes in the room and no one near the object in question. There was a clown hanging from the ceiling under a parachute that started swinging. Kind of creepy, but we didn't try to reason it away. Not sure if that one was actually paranormal. As we continued the tour, we went to the room with Ed Gein's cauldron. I did not like that room. Ed got a bit handsy with me. I was standing in the corner with no one behind me. As I stood there, I felt a poke on my left elbow. Not sure if he was measuring me up to put in the cauldron. I've never had that sensation before then and never since. It has stuck with me and not sure if I would ever go back in that room. Further into the tour, we ended up in the room with the Dybbuk box, where my husband Jamie felt three fingers run against the back of his neck when he was near the box and no one was near him. It creeped him out to say the least. One of the last rooms we visited was for the demon house. Didn't stay in there long as the feeling in the room was very heavy and dark, not due to the lighting. As much as I wished it was. Would I go back? Probably. Thanks for reading and hope you have a great day and keep on creeping it real. Anita from Ottawa, Canada. P.S. I wrote this as I'm decorating my lobby of three apartment buildings I manage for Halloween. I love decorating for Halloween. Mm, I love the decoration. Yeah, I guess I should say that. Like Hate putting them up. Yeah. Hate taking them down. Taking them down is the worst. But it's so much faster than putting them up, though. Mm-hmm. Because taking them down, throwing them in totes, hoping they don't break. But putting them up, you're like, okay, where did I have this last year? Mm-hmm. Is this too much on this table? Right. Also, I love that you said Ed Gein was filling you up. And I thought you were going to say, like, a hand on your ass. Yes. Or, like, on your boob or whatever, but on the elbow. But that does make Makes sense. Makes sense, yes. <laughs> he was like, let's see, how, this is an olive oil elbow? Is this, okay, what could I make with this? Okay, I could make, like, a lamp stand. <laughs> how much salt do I need for this body? Peroxide to lighten it up, <laughs> make it shine. Ugh. That's terrible. Look, I know that some people really don't like the museum. Some people do. I want to go and experience it myself, but 
like, and we know that like the Dybbuk box, that thing, the guy was like, I made it all up or whatever. But I honestly think that could be one of those things where it's like a tulpa because his story got told so much and everything. So it's like, maybe it is like we have created this evil energy around this box and stuff. Yeah. But that damn box is why Donna calls him Dybbuk douche. That sure is. Made us wait for a four hour. Okay, God. not us. Y'all know I didn't watch that shit. But like, four hours of my life on the Halloween special. Knowing he wasn't going to open that shit. That does some questionable things. Like when the. God, I can't think of their names. Warrens. Yes, I do them all the time. I was like, God. But the Warrens, like son or nephew or whoever, like on their museum after they passed. He had brought Annabelle, and he's like, do not touch her. And, of course, she's sitting on the chair, and fucking Zach touches her and stuff. He's like, I was overcome, blah, 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 blah. I'm like, don't touch Annabelle. Leave that raggedy-ass bitch right there where she is and don't touch her. Don't fucking talk about her like that. If she comes and she messes with us, it's all your fault. Well, it's because she was a raggedy handle. No, I know. Okay, the next one. Palette cleansers. Hey, Don and Carrie, love you ladies in the community you have created. And for those of you keeping track, I'm submitting this October 26, 2023. I decided to send in some palette cleansers as I know you guys need some to combat all the scary stuff. They're a little short, but who cares? Also, the last one of the episode, too. I know, right? My first story is a crazy synchronicity story in the family. So back around 2001, my sister went to visit Pompeii. While she was there, she heard a small group of college-age boys speaking with an American accent. She overhears them talking about Hampton Sydney College, which is a small college in our hometown that most people have never heard of. She goes up to them and says, hey, and that she knows the school. They brush her off at first, thinking, no way, this bitch is crazy and just must be hitting on us. But she mentioned some of the coaches and the people there, and then they believed her. About a year later, my mom is standing in line at the movies. She overhears some college boys talking about their trip to Pompeii. My mom turns around and says, this is going to sound crazy, but I think you might have met my daughter there last year in Pompeii, and then tells them what she looked like and blah, blah, blah. They then proceeded to lose their shit. Holy synchronicity, you guys. Okay, another story in my family sounds like it came right out of the movie Pearl Harbor. And then they insert starts drooling, remembering Josh Hartnett. Oh, sorry, where was I? (laughs) Okay, so when my grandma was young, she was dating a man named Barney, who sadly had to go fight in World War II. They were very happy together, and she missed him dearly. However, one day her letters started to go unanswered for a long, long time and she sadly assumed that he had been killed in combat. A year or so later, someone calls her house, and my grandma's sister picks up the phone. Hello, is Maggie there? The man on the line asked, and her sister said, No, I'm sorry, she's on her honeymoon. The man sounded very disappointed and said goodbye. My grandma's sister had recognized the voice and knew it was Barney. She never told Maggie, and my mom only knows the story because her aunt told her the story after Maggie passed. I felt so sorry for Barney, but at the same time, I would have never been here if that hadn't happened. It's crazy how our own existence depends on so many small choices and events from our ancestors combined. 
My last story is another palate cleanser, as it is a horrifically embarrassing thing that happened to me a couple of months ago that still haunts my dreams. I am only sharing this because, let's face it, you all have no idea who the fuck I am and you deserve a laugh. So I was with my hubby in Spain on vacation, and we were on our way to go for a night out in Benningdorm. I hope I'm saying that right. We traveled on the tram to get there. The tram was incredibly crowded, packed with people ready for their Saturday night out on the town. It was so crowded, we were basically in a sardine can. You couldn't move at all, and everyone had to stand huddled together against a bunch of strangers. Not ideal. I'm facing Hubby, and his back is next to the wall of the tram. I look at his hand holding onto one of the bars, and I noticed his fingernail was all jagged, like it had been ripped off. I touched his nail and said, oh, wow, you need to cut that. The hand lurches away, and then to my horror, I realized it was, in fact, not my husband's <laughs> nail, and I had just fucking touched a stranger's nasty fingernail. I'm so horrified, I'm still in shock. I start <laughs> to say sorry, but realize this man doesn't speak English, and I couldn't even explain myself. From this man's perspective, he must have thought I was some crazy lady who had the audacity to touch him and point out his nastiness. <laughs> this guy looked so greasy and gross, and the worst part is we had another 10 minutes to go, so I just had to stand there next to him. I faced the other way, horrified, and trying my best to teleport out of there. It was not funny at all then, but we laugh so hard about it now. Anyway, that's my horrible moment of existence, and I hope you all got a laugh. Thanks for letting me tell my random stories. Creep it real and don't get scared. Unless you accidentally touch a gremlin's dirty fingernail, Dana. Why can I just picture this happening? Oh my God, that is great. Absolutely. <laughs> you need to cut that. <laughs> oh God. <laughs> and also, like the things that we say to our family that we would never say to anybody else. Like I right. would never to someone in public, like you need to cut your fingernail. But let Donna or Colby need to cut their nail. And I'm like, dude, cut your shit. No, she'd say, ew, gross. Cut that. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. That is great. And that also really does sound like something I would do because I will fixate on something. Like, God, yes. And you fix on it to where you have to get it out. I have to. Like, I would be, like, looking at it and be like, I need to just help him with his fingernail. Like. It's just a thing. But you don't. You don't have to say it. <laughs> y'all, these stories were great. They did not disappoint. Thank y'all so much for sending them in. And if you want your story read on an episode, just email it to us at aparanormalchicks at gmail.com. And remember, creep it real and, and don't, don't get, get scared. scared.